My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. At the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deep into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on events that have a broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we always make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For this month's edition, we will focus on the UK party conference season, the IMF and World Bank annual meetings, and the European Council, with just a hint of the upcoming election in Poland thrown in as well. October is Conservative, Labour and Green Party conference season in the UK. The Liberal Democrats went a bit early. They went in September, but it is very much the time of year where all the parties in the United Kingdom are getting together, meet amongst each other, set priorities, debate, and there's generally a lot of media frenzy. I've got our UK country director with me, Alex Dawson. Hi, Alex. Thanks for being here. Hi. Good to see you. So, Alex, are you going to help us unravel what all of this means? So tell me a bit more about what is going on. What does party conference season look like in the UK? Okay, so fundamentally, the party conference season is, as you suggested, Isabel, where the parties come together to debate their priorities, sometimes vote on rules relating to the party and vote on policies that they want to pursue in the next year. But really, as a piece of political theatre and as a piece of political staging, it's of national significance and important to voters as well as to members of those political parties. And what we're going to be seeing is, particularly from the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, is the curtain raiser for their campaigns for the general election, which is due in the UK in potentially May, but potentially also October, November next year, where they're going to be saying, well, look, this is what we're going to be campaigning on. These are the policies that we're going to start to push And this is the framing we want to deliver. For Rishi Sunak, it's about how he can deliver change if he secures a majority of the next election, trying to pick up a little bit on potential public tiredness with the Conservative government so far. So he's kind of characterising himself as the change candidate. And for Keir Starmer, it's going to be focusing on how he can actually lead an alternative government, be more than the guy who threw the Corbynistas, the far left kind of rump out of the Labour Party be more than the guy who just did a very good job opposing the government and actually be a future prime minister who's going to be able to deliver the change he argues the country requires. Very interesting. You called us the curtain raiser of essentially the political campaigning season as we're heading towards a yet undetermined general election at some point. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the individual parties. You've kind of set out how important it's going to be for Rishi Sunak to really put some emphasis on what this change is going to look like, especially after we've just in late September had a pushback to his speech about net zero and how that might be changing, how some of these priorities are changing. How do you think that is setting him up for um, party conference? Are we expecting a divided Tory party or do we think this is going to be a crowning moment for him? Well, look, I think the Tory party is divided. You can't go through three prime ministers in as many years as they have without being divided. Part of the purpose of the reset with regards to net zero, where he maintains the government and the party's commitment to the target of 2050, but changes some of the phasing almost of how you get there, is an attempt to bring together kind of the disparate groups of the party. So arguably there's a Trussite insistence on growth as as part of his thinking on this. 
And then there's also the maintaining the Johnsonian or Johnsonist approach to actually delivering on that target, which um, is kind of important to a constituency of conservative voters, but is not really one of the top five issues which he wants to campaign on. I think that we will start to see a bit more of that. I think some more of those questions of resets as we come to his speech on the Wednesday party conference. But also it's going to be a really important moment as well for Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, to set out his approach to growth, how he fashions an argument around some of the big questions facing the UK, and which frankly both parties are grappling with. Namely, you know, how do you go for growth when trend growth over the last 15 years has been so sluggish? How do you tackle public spending, which is ultimately not matched by tax receipts? And how do you reform public service departments in order to deliver that? And then obviously you've got some big twin challenges in terms of net zero, artificial intelligence. How do you seize the opportunity on those, but carry the public with you in terms of their support for it? And then finally as well, there are going to be these questions hanging over uh, these events where you have lots of investors and businesses engaging a party conference, which is how do you get the geopolitics right as the UK post-Brexit? Clearly you've got a general election as well in the US next year. You have a big set of elections in the EU next year. And all the time you have all these questions about decoupling, de-risking from China which are behind some of these debates that are going on in Manchester and Liverpool over the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. So Sunak is going to try to use this opportunity to focus on these resets, on trying to find some agreement within the party, bring them together against what really is a very challenging external backdrop. So, of course, we've got the internal challenges. We've got the public spending questions you've touched on. We have the question of what we're doing with AI, but I think it is vital what you've mentioned here the macroeconomic and the macropolitical is really a very challenging backdrop for these conference seasons. And how do you think Keir Starmer is going to deal with this? What's on the agenda for Labour? What is he going to try and do to win people over? Well, at the moment, Starmer and Labour have a 20-point lead in the polls, which looks very, very good on the face of it. But you've got to remember that maybe gets him a, you know, a small to middling majority, uh, particularly, and that's going to be particularly difficult if the polls start to close over the course of the next six months, 12 months. And so for him, what he needs to try and do, you know, personally in this conference is change the perception of him as someone who lacks a bit of definition in the public eye and sends a strong, clear signal around the type of policy and the type of government that he wants to lead. What we have seen over the last couple of weeks is Starmer come out with a couple of policies which have been trying to provide some of that kind of in advance. So he's spoken about trying to seek a new deal with the EU post-Brexit, similarly striking a deal over migration and where the UK would effectively be part of a sort of resettlement scheme for effectively burden share with the EU, both of which are relatively controversial in pure kind of political strategist terms, because arguably it is the Labour Party talking about areas of weakness for them which the Conservative Party would hope to exploit. But it shows you that Keir Starmer is thinking that he's got a significant lead, he needs to build a mandate, and he needs to define himself somewhat in response to what he argues are Conservative failures. And I think we're going to start to see a little bit more about that. I also think what we will see Labour talking about a lot more at this conference is about growth and about how Labour achieves growth. 
whether it's public-private partnership, whether it's offering a kind of a more sustainable base for investment, you're going to start to see them try to round out that offer. Clearly, though, some of the macro headwinds that the UK faces is makes it very, very difficult for either Conservatives or Labour to be very, very kind of convincing on this at this point. But I think we're going to see Keir Starmer try. Interesting. So we're going to look out for the Labour vision on growth. We're going to see Keir try and maybe succeed and build out some of his profile a bit more, defining his profile a bit more. And it will be interesting to see how he builds on some of these policy ideas that he has been trailing in the run-up to conference season, especially a topic of immigration and migration, as well as the relationship with the EU. If all of this sounds like things are changing, things are in flux, things are clearly kicking off as we look forward to an election. If you're a company or an investor active in the UK, how do you grapple with this now that campaigning season is essentially starting? Should this change how you engage? And if so, kind of how would you change it? Well, so firstly, it's clearly companies and investors need to start thinking about the opposition just as much as they're thinking about the government. We're entering into a period of uh, highly contested politics, so it makes sense to make sure you've got a strategy that can encompass both Conservatives, the Labour Party, to an extent the Liberal Democrats, but I would prioritise the Red Party or the Blue Party first. I also think, though, that you shouldn't discount how important it is going to be just to continue your business as usual engagement with the officials, with the civil servants in government. We're not like America here in the UK. A large chunk of policy making is done by a permanent civil service. What Keir Starmer faces on day one will have been written in terms of all the ministerial handovers, etc., by officials over the course of the previous few months. So I still think that you want to engage in good faith on official consultations, on official work. And clearly, as ever, we always advise companies to make sure that they're building up their political brand and political capital. Politicians, officials don't want transactional relationships with companies. They want to know that you're here for a long time, not just a good time. And they want to know that you're invested in what they want to do with the country. And so it's very, very important to pay close attention to that, to think about that, to think about how you frame your offerings to consumers in those terms, and also frame your offerings to policymakers in those terms. And that work is obviously good practice when you're outside of an election season. It's also very, very important inside an election season. You have politicians looking for votes. They want to be popular. There's a risk that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So make sure that you're at the table. Well, thanks very much, Alex. Um, we're going to be watching those party conference very closely. We're going to be there. We're going to host events on the sidelines. So please do get in touch with us. Um, about these events and we look forward to supporting you as these things really kick off. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. From the 9th of October till the 15th of October, we will have development ministers, finance ministers, central bankers and lots of officials and policymakers and private sector representatives descend on Marrakesh in Morocco for the IMF and World Bank annual meetings. It's one of the most important dates in the economic calendar for the year. And to talk about this, I have Thomas Grotowski with me, who leads our global macro practice. Um, hi, Thomas. Hi, Isabel. Thank you for having me. Well, because I started with saying that this is the most important economic um, event in the calendar, let's talk about the economics first. Maybe help me set the scene a little bit and tell me what is the economic background? What's the context as we head into those meetings? I think once more... The debate will be very much about the resilience of the global economy. You could argue that the global economy has been more resilient than previously expected. A year ago, there was a lot of talk and expectation of a recession 
perhaps in 2023. And this hasn't happened. And I think the debate about a recession is somewhat less of an issue at the moment. The IMF back in July upgraded its growth forecast for this year to 3%, which is by any means not a very good rate. But it again pointed to that more resilient economy. Now, what we have seen, however, is the emergence of a multi-speed economy, where some economies are doing fairly well and others are actually underperforming. To pick out a, a few, clearly Europe is growing slowly. It's, many of its economies are basically stagnating. Germany, its largest economy, is in recession. China has underperformed as well. And if we remember the debate a year ago, the World Bank then actually warned that China as a source of global growth and demand would be important in order to stabilize the global economy. And there was discussion about whether China should enact a stimulus, which hasn't happened. And China's economy after the reopening has, has underperformed. But what we haven't seen is a synchronized recession, especially in, in the US and, and Europe. And so that lack of Chinese stimulus hasn't been as much of an issue, perhaps, as it was discussed a year ago. But of course, it doesn't mean that just because this year wasn't as perhaps bad as expected, there aren't any challenges ahead. And especially the growth outlook is, is, is really not, not great. Interesting. So we're going into this meeting with maybe slightly more optimism than last year. You're mentioning more resilience than we maybe expected, less fear of a synchronized recession, but equally a real divergence amongst which countries are performing better, which are performing more poorly. And Maybe important to do exactly what you just started to do at the end, which is look ahead. You mentioned challenges. What do you think is the outlook like for 2024? Are we assuming the next year is going to be any better than this year or at least not worse uh, than 2023? So I think agreement hopefully won't be worse than this year. So the, the latest IMF growth forecast was 3% now for this year and next year. So it will remain at a similar level, which is if you look at growth over the last decades, very, very low. And certainly below also what the fund expects to be the global growth potential, at least over, over the medium term. And so I think uh, some of the, the issues that will continue to remain with us in 2024 are sluggishness in Europe. The European Commission recently updated its own growth forecast and actually revised it down for this year and next year, which means that we, we won't really see a bounce back, but Europe more settling at a low low growth basis. There's a lot of uncertainty around China. So again, uh, that won't be resolved next year, even though some hope that growth will somewhat accelerate. But I think there's, uh, there are a lot of, lot of structural headwinds that will make this complicated. The brighter spot has been the US economy, where we have seen the narrative of a soft landing really becoming quite, quite dominant. I would argue that it's still too early to say that this soft landing is, is, is really the, the baseline scenario. I think we have been in quite an extraordinary situation now coming out of the pandemic, having seen so much fiscal and monetary stimulus, that some of the effects of the now monetary tightening are actually not really passing through to consumers and corporates. And I think that might actually change now in the coming month and especially next year when that lag effect of monetary policy or that lagging effect of monetary policy will show more strongly its force. 
Also, there are some, some programs like the student loan forbearance program in the United States, which will only now require from the 1st of October again, about 30 million Americans to pay on average $400 per month. Obviously, all of this will be a drag on consumption. Now, two other factors. One is the oil price, which has been rising significantly and which will hurt further the global industrial sector, which is already in recession. And we've seen reports recently about global trade being in retreat. And then lastly, next week, next year, we will have what I would call transatlantic elections, elections to the European Parliament, general elections in the UK, and especially general elections in the US with the presidential election, obviously, being uh, the, the main focus, perhaps. And so there is a real risk of a return of Mr. Trump to the White House. And I think some of the political risk will also be priced into market reactions and into economic decisions. Okay, so you're saying we're looking at a forecast that's at least not worse, even though a stagnation at around 3% is certainly not what anyone would consider good or speedy. But some interesting things for us to, to watch the sluggishness in Europe, the uncertainty about China, the soft landing narrative in the US, even though I take your point that this should not be taken as our baseline yet. And of course, some real uncertainties around questions like the oil price, where is it going to settle and those big elections that you've touched on. I'd like to move slightly away from the discussions about the forecasts and economic outlooks and maybe talk about the broader political and policy agenda at the meetings. Do you have a sense of what's going to be top of the agenda on that broader front? Absolutely. So I think, and that is kind of the connecting factor, the global economy is very much influenced by geopolitics. And obviously what we see at a multilateral level is also that geopolitics is increasingly influencing policy debates, or if you will, hindering policy coordination. This year was a bit different because the G20's leader summit actually took place before the annual meetings. And perhaps the Indian government was able to beat expectations by at least being able to agree on a final communique, which at the beginning of this year was really not clear. And I think one of actually the most notable successes of the G20 leader summit was what it said about global development finance. And that is absolutely the key topic that will be picked up in Marrakesh this year. Specifically, discussion is very much about how can you increase multilateral lending capacity to developing nations to fund their growth. I just mentioned growth is low and that's particularly hitting low economies. And secondly, how can the global transition to net zero be financed by developing nations? And so what I think was interesting is that the G20 came up with a, with a number of what is roughly needed. They said at least four trillion per year, which is obviously across a domestic uh, financing and multilateral financing, private sector financing. So across all of those different segments. But it is estimated that uh, multilateral development banks need to contribute roughly 200 billion. And so there has been now a lot of discussion about the World Bank at least contributing half of that. The new World Bank president, AJ Banga, has said, He envisions a World Bank that takes on more risk, involves the private sector more, and basically leverages the resources that it has. Obviously, that's a tight, or it requires a, a balancing act because the World Bank lives from its AAA rating and taking on more risk, obviously, risks that AAA rating. So the proposal he has tabled is about how you can, can expand perhaps guarantees the, the bank provides, issues that can be used as kind of hybrid capital. So there are different, different ways of, of how he intends to structure that. In parallel to that, 
the Biden administration has tabled a proposal to mobilize 100 billion by putting 25 billion on the table from the US side, has asked Congress to get 2.25 billion that it then again intends to leverage to 25 billion. But much of that then obviously depends also on getting others on board. So if the US is able to provide 25 billion, who's able to provide the other 75 billion? So that is a big question. And then lastly, on that front, it's not only about perhaps lending or about the amount of lending, but actually lending for what? So when I worked at the World Bank nearly a decade ago, I was part of this country strategy team. The World Bank is very much required to really align itself with national development strategies, which are led by the governments. And so there has been debate whether the World Bank should become a more independent lender. But I think there's very much pushback, especially from governments at the receiving end that very much want to influence and guide where World Bank financing is being channeled towards. It's a pretty fascinating challenge I think we're facing, especially after the G20 put this large, large figure in the final communique. That four trillion per year figure, I think, has really not left people's minds ever since. So I will not be surprised that closing that financing gap is going to be absolutely crucial. But what role the MDBs are going to play is very interesting. What you've said here about how the World Bank can accept more risk while squaring that with maintaining its AAA rating is really quite a difficult circle to, to square. And then how does it work with this focus on country strategies? Can that be untied? Super, super interesting. Maybe one last question for you, Thomas. And this is also something that has come out of the G20 and has been part of the global conversations, which is that big question about institutional reform. What do you think is the prospect for this? Are we going to see anything during those meetings? So I think the question of institutional reform is obviously closely linked to the question of capital. That has largely to do with how World Bank and also IMF, which also is asking actually for an increase in its capital structure, how their governance is set up. Basically, countries that pay in money into those institutions then have a voting share that very closely corresponds to the paid-in capital. So there are some, like the US government, who say we need to focus on the financing part because that is the more critical one and it's politically easier. But there are others, and I think some European governments have signed up to that, including French government, who say that in, if you want to bring in developing nations more on board, you also need to really reform the governance. You need to increase their say in the running of the institutions, in setting the agenda and the priorities of the institutions. But of course, that is where then geopolitics very quickly comes back in. And in particular, if you think about how normally capital increases work, because normally they need to reflect or more closely reflect a country's share in the global economy. And of course, the last time major reform was enacted, 2010, the global economy had a very different structure. And especially China's share in the global economy has, over the last 30 years or so, of course, increased massively. And so the very political question becomes, how would China's influence in both institutions increase? And actually, why this is even more important is that Biden's, if you will, pitch to Congress to get more money for the World Bank was very much focused on the idea that by increasing World Bank lending, you would actually decrease Chinese influence in infrastructure and green financing and influence over some developing nations. So there are some clear contradictions that you can see. I think much of that discussion, obviously, IMF and World Bank is also closely linked. The IMF will have its, its parallel discussions 
which will probably come to conclusion or are meant to be coming to a conclusion in December, but much of that I think will happen behind closed doors in, in Marrakesh as well. And then, of course, there's the political question of even if there's agreement in Marrakesh or later next year during the Brazilian presidency, would any of that be implemented anytime soon because of, of politics? And I mentioned elections, especially US election is obviously critical after well, the last reform effort we saw, which started in, uh, was enacted in 2010. So was only enacted, let's say, in the middle of the first Obama presidency, which suggests that at least policy discussions t- can take place, uh, new proposals can be tabled, but actually an enactment of reform might actually take still years at the end of the day. So we'll see what happens in Marrakesh. I wouldn't be only pessimistic, but I think we need to be realistic about what is feasible on a policy front, but also on a geopolitical front. It sounds like an absolute fascinating set of meetings. That tension around reform, what kind of reform and at what speed is going to be absolutely crucial and We'll be watching it closely. Thanks very much, Thomas. Thank you very much. On October 26th and 27th, we have the European Council Summit in the calendar. These summits are opportunities for EU leaders to meet face-to-face and to hash out their positions on different EU priorities. These summits take place once every few months, so they're really important touch points for understanding what is top of the agenda in the EU. To talk about this month's summit, I have Olga Henkele with me. She's an associate in Global Council's EU policy practice. Hi, Olga. Hi, Isabel. Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. So can I kick us off with a relatively standard question just to help us understand what's, what's important this time around? So what do you think are going to be some of the main policy areas that we should expect um, leaders to discuss during the summit this time around? Sure. So I, will, I would start with something else. I would start with Commission's President von der Leyen's last speech on State of the Union that focused on competitiveness and enlargement. These were two main priority areas she outlined. And during the European Council Summit on October 26th and 27th, we expect that these discussions will follow. And while there is no official agenda yet, we expect that enlargement and concept of open strategic autonomy and competitiveness will be at the core of these discussions. But also interestingly, what I want to mention is that it will be last summit for Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki with Polish general elections also taking place on October 15th. So there will be some interesting topics to be discussed during this summit. Interesting. And especially whenever we have kind of political changes coinciding with these things. It makes a particularly juicy summit often, especially because we've seen some of these tensions around Poland. But maybe let's dive deeper into the policy areas a little bit before we talk about the Polish question. Um, Let's touch touch on open strategic autonomy. What do you think the discussions are going to entail? Sure. So I would like to firstly outline what are the policy discussions in general on open strategic autonomy. And the reflection of the way of thinking about open strategic autonomy can be seen in the nexus of industrial policy, on competition policy, also trade. So in many instances, it focuses on China, but it also encompasses other third parties like the US. So during the State of the Union speech, I am again coming back to that. So during the speech, she reasserted the doctrines of open strategic autonomy and de-risking from China. 
as well as she had a kind of a nod towards France, calling for new energy technologies to be made in Europe. So generally, there is agreement among EU policymakers that higher degree of autonomy will maintain the EU status of a key player on a global stage. And there is agreement between also policymakers and especially also Spanish presidency, because for them, this is one of the main policy areas and priorities. And they also presented a roadmap really recently in September that was about strengthening EU's resilience and competitiveness. It's called Resilient EU 2030. And it identified strategic vulnerabilities that EU should address in the next decade. So from here, the name EU 2030 comes from. And there were sectors like energy, digital technologies, health and food sectors outlined. And this strategy will be discussed by EU leaders. But first, it will be discussed at the informal European Council Summit earlier in October, so on October 6th. But I must mention that this Council Summit will likely be an opportunity to identify a common direction of travel rather than agreeing on specific meaningful policy outcomes. So during the main Council Summit, if I may say so, so on October 26th and 27th, EU leaders will also address the competitiveness, but here the discussions will be on enhancing EU's economic resilience and security, also talking about how to maintain EU's economy open. And here also von der Leyen's announced anti-subsidy probe into Chinese electrical vehicles will likely also come up. And I would say, especially for me, it will be also interesting to see whether EU leaders will find a common ground on the Commission's communication on the EU's economic security strategy that was published in June. But during the previous European Council summit, there was lack of explicit support for the strategy. And this reflects an earlier skepticism by EU capitals, especially France and Germany, over von der Leyen's approach on strengthening the EU's economy and economic security. So there will be a lot of issues to unpack under this agenda item, and I'm excited to see what will come out of that. Absolutely. It sounds like there's some areas where there's more agreement than others. It sounds like it might be easier to push ahead and find some common ground on the roadmap for strengthening the EU resilience and competitiveness, the resilient EU 2030 roadmap that you mentioned, maybe rather than the EU's economic security strategy, which was published just in June, like you mentioned. So certainly, like you say, lots on the agenda. You also touched on another point earlier. You mentioned enlargement, which was another topic that von der Leyen touched on in her State of the Union address. And it was all about her re-emphasizing the role of the Commission in geopolitical decisions about EU enlargement. Do you expect any major announcements or any major debates about the enlargement topic at the European Council in October? Indeed. So during the State of the Union speech, von der Leyen stated that EU must prepare to grow to more than 30 members and that the Commission will lead technical assessments on candidate countries. The speech, however, avoided committing to a timeline for the candidate countries, basically promising only a report to the European Council, but that will be in the first half of the next year about the process 
And she also emphasized that it should be a merit-based decisions that would be needed. She warned candidate states such as Western Balkan countries, Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, that far-reaching reforms will be among the main principles for accession. Meanwhile, the European Commission is also expected to publish its annual enlargement report. Um, this is on progress of the candidate states, and this will take place around mid-October or early November. And on this basis, EU leaders are expected to decide, but in December, not in October, whether or not to open accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova. Therefore, this October Council Summit is expected to open up these discussions. However, I must note that only the next EU legislative cycle generally might really break the status quo over EU enlargement in the EU. So I believe no groundbreaking decisions are expected during this summit. Interesting. So it's certainly on the menu, but we might not expect any clear decisions there. I guess it often happens like this if you're heading towards a new election, a new electoral cycle, as we are with the EU. Sometimes these things uh, get pushed uh, into the long grass a little bit for uh, the next administration to, to deal with. And this is certainly not a straightforward decision for the EU on enlargement. And we should expect this to be quite a drawn out process, even if it probably does kick off this October. I would briefly like to zoom in a little bit, kind of moving from the EU level to a more bilateral country to country level, because you mentioned Ukraine in the um, light of enlargement. But we've also seen in recent days, especially tensions between Poland and Ukraine over the grain deal. Do you think that's an issue that we might also see bubble up during the summit? That's a good question. While situation in Ukraine and support for Ukraine will likely be one of the official agenda items, as it has been the previous summits after the war in Ukraine started, I believe behind the scenes, also the conflict between Poland and Ukraine will likely raise up, if not resolved before that, of course. As mentioned earlier, uh, the elections in Poland are looming. So for Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki, this announcement to suspend deliveries of new weapons to Kiev due to an escalating row over exports of Ukrainian grain, can be seen in light of Poland's election campaign, I would say. And I think member states that have been vocal already on this issue, like, for example, Baltic states, um, they will likely to raise up this issue again because they have already tried to resolve this conflict earlier. But when we are talking about Ukraine, I think I would like to mention another point. These are the next round of sanctions that are also expected to be addressed during the summit. But it's not the European Council who is adopting sanctions, but usually this is a really good momentum for European Council to express their political commitment. While measures, there are a lot of measures that will be again sensitive, like nuclear energy, but finding agreement, of course, will be difficult for them it's still a good momentum for EU leaders to address this topic. And I think any new package will also likely to include, include further moves to crack down Russia's ability to get around the EU sanctions to third countries like United Arab Emirates and Turkey. So still tough discussions ahead, but really important to have this momentum now. 
Absolutely. So we both have the bilateral tensions between Poland and Ukraine that, um, if I understand correctly, the Baltic Straits are going to try and play an, a key role in trying to resolve this ahead of the summit. But doesn't necessarily sound like an easy job. And of course, we can get a, a temperature check, we might say, on where the willingness is for new sanctions during, during the summit so that um, a next round of sanctions can, can be negotiated. And before we leave, I want to come back to something we touched on at the very beginning, which is the Polish election. And especially because we can possibly understand the announcement about suspended deliveries of weapons to Ukraine as part of the Polish election campaign. What do we expect is going to be the outcome of the Polish elections? Of course, it's always hard to predict, but the ruling Nationalist Law and Justice Party in Poland, so this is the party that Prime Minister Morawiecki represents, faces a tough election in October, I would say. Uh, on current polls, Law and Justice Party will narrowly hold onto power in coalition with the right-wing Confederation Party. However, there also might be changes. Um, a change of government to former president, also of the European Council, Donald Tusk Civic Coalition, would be actually a significant victory, uh, especially for center-right European People's Party, and would be maybe a resolution of Poland's disputes with the Commission on the Rule of Law. So we will closely follow these election results because this is definitely a momentum to look out for. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep our eyes on both the Polish elections and then shortly afterwards the European Council Summit. Thanks very much, Olga. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. On this note, we are at the end of this month's episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. We're clearly looking at a very interesting month of October. We'll see the beginning of campaign season in the UK, when the different parties meet for their last annual conferences ahead of the next general election. We will see important questions about closing the climate finance gap and reform take place in Marrakesh at the IMF and World Bank meetings. And we will see European leaders gather for a European Council Summit that has open strategic autonomy, competitiveness and enlargement on the agenda. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you, Alex, Thomas and Olga. And thanks to you for listening.